Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We are in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. So if you would, turn in your Bibles there and and we'll get started here just in a moment. But by way of overview, uh, particularly for those that may be joining us for the first time or for those that are just Getting used to the uh, the format and, and flow of the program, we are in a teaching series and have been for a while on important prophecy terms, important prophecy terms, and we're looking at seven sets of terms. We've already looked at the Son of God versus the Son of Man, and again, as we uh, go through these, the main reason for going through these seven is, for example, the Son of God, Son of Man. You may think, well, that's exactly the same person. Well, it is. But it's used in dramatically different ways in the Bible, and it's important to understand that as we um, go through particularly the prophetic portions of the Bible. And uh, we are in the gospel of the kingdom contrasted with the gospel of grace right now. And the gospel of the kingdom, uh, as we've been pointing out for a number of programs now, is the gospel that Jesus Christ taught to Israel He brought the gospel as had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, And again, from ancient Old Testament times up until the time that Jesus preached it, it was to Israel. And we'll get into that, uh, specifically talking about the target audience when we get into Matthew chapter 10. But we are looking at uh, going back to the uh, founding documents, if you will, the the genesis of this, and we went all the way back into Deuteronomy, as you recall, last time, and looked at a number of verses, because just before the Israelites came across the uh, the Jordan River, miraculously, when God dammed up the flowing Jordan River so that two million-plus Israelites could cross over the river in a day, that uh, he just before he did that, he gave the gospel to Moses. And Moses preached it in the book of Deuteronomy, and it was preached to Israel. It was preached to Israel because Israel was going to be the catalyst from which the gospel would be taken to the rest of the world if they had obeyed God and believed him and believed his appointed leaders, Moses and then Joshua and so forth. But that, as we saw over and over again, very, very arrogant, hard-headed stiff-necked people, and that's, of course, been the history of Israel, and that is one of the main reasons why we're admonished to read the Old Testament and not to ignore it simply by stating that it's about the Jews. It's simply because it is about the Jews, about about God's chosen people and how he treated them and how they reacted to God with uh, taking the, the miracles and the good news and so forth and kind of disparaging it, if you will. The point is that today, when you have a friend, an acquaintance, perhaps even a family member that has um, not only gone into a lifestyle of iniquity, but is deeply into a, a lifestyle of iniquity, 
and and confesses to you at some point that they are so evil, they are so bad that there's no way that God would accept them. Well, you simply take them back to the Old Testament and say, look at the Jews, look at the Jews and how evil they were, but God had covenanted with them and God wants to covenant with you and whoever that friend is that is struggling with the idea that they can't be saved, that salvation is a covenant agreement with Heavenly Father God. So that's was presented to the Israelites way back then, 1,400 years before Christ, and it was through the presence of God and his Shekinah glory, first in the tabernacle in the wilderness, then the tabernacle in, in the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, for over 350 years, and then it was in Solomon's temple, and then it was in um, Zerubbabel's original temple, and I shouldn't say it, he was, his glory was in the temple, and his actually his glory was in the temple until about um, 590, we don't know exactly, but it tells us in Ezekiel that his, his Shekinah glory left the temple and has never been back in the temple again until Jesus came, and when he taught in the temple or when he uh, went in as an 8-year-old early on in his life, that was the only time that the Spirit of God has been in a temple here on the earth. So then God sent Jesus, and that temple became you and me, the church, and Jesus left the earth and gave us the gift of grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us. And uh, that's going to be the gospel of grace with the, with, that we uh, talk about here in a few uh, programs into the future. But we are wrapping up the gospel that was going to be, uh, that would result in an earthly kingdom. Can't emphasize that enough. It is. It was a promised earthly kingdom. And as we pointed out several times, as we've been back in um, the chapters in Deuteronomy, and we'll do again here in Jeremiah, Nowhere in here do you see any reference to heaven other than the kingdom coming down from heaven to the earth. Whereas we get into the gospel of grace, all the promises will be to heaven. So we're in, uh, we're in Jeremiah. We're in the Old Testament kind of finishing up. I think this will probably be the last uh, verse we look at, looking at the worksheet here as we will uh, spend the rest of our time in the New Testament looking at the mechanics of the uh, gospel itself, and then we'll transition to the gospel of grace. So again, Jeremiah 31, starting at 30, verse 31, and we read this last time. Let's read it very quickly again, and, and we'll comment on it here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their, within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, 
we're not going to go there for the sake of time because we've been, uh, one point is we've been there before several times because we always uh, find ourselves kind of drifting back to Daniel chapter 9 and uh, particularly 24 to 27, the great prophecy about the 70 weeks in which God deals directly with Israel. And the result, as we're told about in the first verse of that uh, wonderful prophetic passage, is that the purpose of the 70 weeks is to bring about several different things. And just about every one of those, with the exception of the cross, is dealt with right here in Jeremiah 31. So we know by looking at Jeremiah 31 and then comparing it with a complementary book, and the reason I say complementary is Jeremiah, like um, Daniel, were uh, prophesying during the Babylonian captivity. Daniel was prophesying from Babylon. Jeremiah was um, prophesying from Israel. He was left behind. Uh, So they're complementing each other. In fact, Jeremiah is the one that informed Daniel that the Lord had told him that the the, um, captivity would only last 70 years. So, the, the point I want to make here is that this is a new covenant, and in the last week, the last week of the 70 weeks, which is yet to come, which is what we know from the scriptures as the tribulation period, those seven years of the great tribulation, at the end of those seven years, everything that's talked about here in Jeremiah 31 through 34 will come to completion, will come to fruition just as it was prophesied by Daniel, that in that 70 week, these things would happen. For instance, um, when he says there in verse 33, but this covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, he says, I will put my law within their heart and on on their uh, law within them and on their heart I will write it. He talks about that in uh, Daniel chapter 9. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They will not teach each other again his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So every person in that immediate generation that is judged by God at the end of the tribulation and judged as righteous, every one of them will be saved. They will have eternal life with God to look forward to even though they will go into the millennial kingdom in their Adamic bodies, not their glorified bodies. That's a heavenly promise to the church. They will go in in their Adamic bodies, but they will be saved, and they know that they will, um, once they die, they will uh, be forever with the Lord. Um, So that's, again, stated right here. They will all know me. All Israel will be saved. If that's, if that, phrase sounds familiar that comes from Romans 11 verse 26 and then it says for I will forgive their iniquity that's that comes right out of Daniel 9:24 and I will forgive their sin I will remember it no more again right out of Daniel 9:24 so we know that these wonderful promises are the result of a belief in the gospel of the kingdom and you're saying wait a minute Steve You're talking about the tribulation. I thought we were talking about Christ coming the first time. Yes, I am, and that's what the Bible tells us. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus offered when he came the first time, that same exact 
gospel of the kingdom, as he preached it then, will be offered again at the end of the tribulation period. In fact, Matthew 24 tells us in that great prophetic passage about the tribulation and the second coming, it says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the earth, and then the end will come. The end of what? The end of the tribulation. So they will they will believe the gospel. They will accept the gospel of the kingdom the next time around. They because they're not associated with the church. The the promises to the church by and large are are quite different, and we'll get into that when we get into the gospel of grace, the personal salvation. But this is a gospel about the coming kingdom that will be brought in by the coming king. And that's the wonderful thing about it. And not only uh, that, but let's go back up to verse 31 and see who's included. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we, whenever we talk about any um, passage directed to Israel, we want to find out what part of Israel are you talking about. And if he talks about Judah, we know he's talking about the southern kingdom. If he talks about Israel in context, it almost always means the northern kingdom. Uh, it does talk about all 12 tribes later on literally in here. And the reason I know that it talks about all 12 tribes is because we know that when you have the term house of Israel and the house of Judah in the same sentence, then you know that all 12 tribes are being referenced. All 12 tribes of Israel have not been together since about 932 B.C., I believe it is. Right after Solomon died, the kingdom was split into Israel in the north with ten tribes and Judah in the south with two tribes. So it's telling us, and again, this is what other passages in the New Testament as well tell us, that all the Jews of the world will be brought back together again in and around Israel and judged, and those that are counted as righteous, which would be one-third of them according to Zechariah, will enter the kingdom. So all representative, righteous, righteous, saved representatives from all 12 tribes, from the 10 from Israel, from the house of Israel, and the two from the house of Judah will all be brought back together again. Well, that would have happened if they had accepted Jesus the first time with the gospel of the kingdom. But we know, thankfully, uh, even though it took 2,000 years of hell on earth, and that's basically the way they describe it for the Jews, and then that final seven years, which is the ultimate hell on earth, then all 12 tribes will come back together and enjoy these wonderful blessings on the earth that had been promised all the way back in Deuteronomy by Moses to the Israelites before they crossed the Jordan to come in. After the 40 years of in the wilderness, it was preached again by Jesus. Both times it was um, basically ignored or refused, but luckily the third time it's going to be accepted. So we have all these foundation documents as well as historical documents to give us a background before we move into the time of Jesus, which is where we want to go back to. We actually launched into these Old Testament passages out of Matthew chapter 4. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll get into the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out his um, 
blessings, if you will, to the nation of Israel if they will simply accept him. So we were in Matthew 4 and verse 17 where it says that Jesus began to preach, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it talks in verses 23, 24, and 25 about how he was preaching to large groups of people, but basically what he was doing was healing them, healing them and feeding them so that he was drawing these large crowds with the intent, the purpose of sharing the gospel of the kingdom with them. And then we get into the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So let's go to verse 1. It said, when Jesus saw these crowds, and these are the crowds that were related uh, to us back up at the end of chapter 4. When Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on the mountain. So it appears that originally his intent was to get away from the crowds temporarily. And the reason we can suppose that at least initially, and I say initially because there were crowds that found him and and listened to what he said. But originally, look who his audience was. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the gospel of the kingdom, talking about this kingdom of heaven, that if they accepted what he was telling them, he would this kingdom would come down out of heaven because it would be Jesus setting up his residence here on the earth, not in heaven. His residence would be here on the earth. He would continue to stay on the earth. And then, of course, if you go back up to verse 5, you see, uh, blessed are the general, gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That's another way we know that he's talking specifically to Israel about the gospel of the kingdom. And nowhere in here can you draw the conclusion that he's talking to the church. One, the church hasn't been um, even created yet, hasn't even been mentioned by Christ yet. And two, we know that there are no earthly promises to the church. So we have a promise of Israel about inheriting the earth. We want to talk about these a little bit more, and then we want to shift because I want you to see how the pronouns change as he's he's teaching these to the apostles, disciples, and telling them about they shall, they shall, they shall. And now in verse 12, he's going to say, you and your. So we're going to see a transition here, and it's important that we see that, and we'll do that in our next uh, teaching portion. But now we want to move to our Q&A portion, as we always do in, in all of our programs. And we have been looking to answer the question, who is not included in the rapture of the church? The rapture of the church is, of course, a signless event. I believe it's the next event on the prophetic calendar because God will not start his work with Israel Um 
to judge Israel, to bring Israel to a point of salvation at the end of the tribulation, but to uh, to punish the earth, to judge the earth for refusing him. So he is going to take the church out of the way, which is his. It's We are his bride. He is our bridegroom, and he is going to come and take us off the earth uh, to meet him in the air and take us to heaven with him, to the new Jerusalem, and there we're going to wed him. So the rapture involves the righteous of the church, and as we've mentioned several times in going over this um, particular question, that the church started at Pentecost when Jesus had left the earth and um, the Holy Spirit came down onto the earth in the sense that he's never left the earth, but he came into the church. And it's key to point out that he came into the church. One of the greatest um, manifestations of the church is the fact that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit permanently in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit of God. But there are other righteous people that are not included with the church. There are other righteous people, therefore, that are not included in the rapture. And we've listed those, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, the Jews and the Gentiles. And in our uh, last program, we finished up our look at the Old Testament saints uh, by going to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we did a lot of background in Hebrews 11, which dealt with the Old Testament saints and how they were saved and how they their spirits were taken out of Hades to the New Jerusalem. So now we want to um, move on to the next group, and that's the tribulation saints. And as you might suspect, these saints are um, people who uh, are saved during the great seven-year tribulation on the earth. And we find them talked about um, most clearly in the book of Revelation. So if you would, let's go to Revelation chapter 20 right towards the end of the last book of the Bible, right towards the end of Revelation to Revelation chapter 20. And uh, you talk about some packed prophetic chapters in the book of Revelation. Of course, all of this is prophecy, but particularly as it relates to how God judges people, how God deals with um, people at the end of the millennial kingdom And then, of course, at the very end uh, here, he also talks about going into the eternal state, which um, is going to be a wonderful, the most wonderful time. The the millennial kingdom will be very good, but it will not be perfect. There will be sin. There will be death. But it will be a whole lot better than the the previous 6,000 years since creation. But eternity... Uh, will be in perfection. In fact, God will, because we will all, everybody involved will be in the perfect state. God will actually physically dwell among us. That's going to be the most amazing part of it. But we go to Revelation chapter 4, and it's talking about dealing with the end of the millennial kingdom, with, um, or I should say the end of the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Let me get this straight. It talks about the thousand years six different times in here, and he's talking about putting Satan in the pit, putting Satan or the dragon in the pit for a thousand years. Then we come down to verse 4, and another event that takes place uh, right at the beginning uh, during the second coming judging phase of 
Jesus coming back, at, and which, of course, ushers in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. We have verse 4. It says, Then I saw, and this, of course, is John the Revelator. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and John first and second, third John. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they, these saints, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is the third group of people that we've talked about who are resurrected and receive glorified bodies. We have the church, which happens before the tribulation begins, and then at the end of the tribulation, as we learned in Daniel, all of the Old Testament saints will receive glorified bodies in their resurrection. And now we find that the tribulation saints, those who came to faith um, and, and principally mostly died, um, died during the tribulation period, they will be resurrected and they will receive glorified bodies. So um, I guess the, the key point to make here is that the rapture of the church took out just one group of righteous people. Yes, they are the bride of Christ. They are special people. They are we, so to speak. They are we, but it's also important to understand that there are others who will be resurrected and will have glorified bodies, meaning they will live forever, and that they will serve with the Lord just as we will in in whatever capacities. And these are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. And they will, it says, they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And just to to kind of dig in here just for a moment or two, to look at who we're talking about here, it says, the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. So you can see that that is one group of people, and I really don't want to split hairs here. Uh, because they're all precious, they're all tribulation saints, they all have suffered mightily for the Lord, but these particularly because they they had the testimony, they gave the testimony of Jesus because of the word of God, and they lost their lives for that. But then you see right after God in this uh, NASB 95 version of my Bible, you have a comma, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand. They were punished as well. And this, this we know is for sure the second half of the tribulation because the mark of the beast was not uh, brought into reality until after the Antichrist and the false prophet came to their full power position after Uh, Satan was thrown down from heaven at the midpoint and gave his power, his authority, and his throne, we're told in Revelation, his power, authority, and throne to the Antichrist to go after Israel principally. But anyone who was uh, believing anything other than the Antichrist was God. So these people all left... um, um, 
were were killed for their faith during the tribulation period, and they were counted as saints, tribulation saints, and they will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming of the Lord, and they will rise to uh, imperishable bodies and will reign with the Lord for a thousand years. So we'll finish up this and get into the Jews and the Gentiles in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.